you take your Bible this morning and turn to Acts chapter 17. I think I could probably sing that song every Sunday before the message. I love, I love that song. The title of the message this morning is A Long Way From Home. In a Bible day when people did not travel beyond their stated location or where they lived, what Paul and his companions are going to do is nothing short of remarkable. Even by today's standards, what they're going to do, and I'll show you a map here in just a moment, is extraordinary. I mean, we don't think much of it today because we travel when we need to travel and we get in a car or plane or whatever, but accessing places that, that they did in their day is, is remarkable. I wanted to show you a map because I feel like we're in kind of a time here uh, of needing to sort of look because so many Bible places are being referenced and why I'm titling this message A Long Way From Home. So right down here, and I hope those of you at home, you have no way of communicating with me, so I'm just going to trust that you can see some of this, maybe, I don't know. Um, down here in Jerusalem. Can you see this over here when I do this? Can you do that? Diane, can you see that back there, Welkers? Okay, because it's going to be hard for me to go boom, boom like that, so I'll just go like this. So here's Jerusalem down here. Here is Antioch right here. This is where Paul and his companions are. They're at the church at Antioch. This purple line, which you may not be able to see, is the journey that's called the second missionary journey. So let me just let my pointer follow the second missionary journey all across Asia here, down here. This is the section we're going to talk about today. And then this red line is the journey back. We're not going to talk about this today, but this journey is extraordinary. And when you think about bandits, pirates, various people that rob and so on and so forth, uh, to leave home and to go across these regions and then all of these waterways, and specifically this one right here, is just quite amazing. And so thus the title of this message is A Long Way From Home. Here is, here is really home for Paul, but here is his new home. But we're going to talk about this over here. I also want to mention something that this over here is Rome, okay? We don't have this in the picture, but Rome is over here. This is really where Paul wants to go. This is like the headquarters of the ancient world at the time. I think it's interesting that last week when Josh preached, this is the, the section that Paul wanted to spend time in. It says in Acts chapter 16 that he wanted to go to Asia. Uh, because Asia at that time, the, the Asia of that time, that was a large section of land. And the Spirit said what? No. I, I think it's interesting that he wanted to preach the gospel, and the Spirit said no. I think it's interesting for us to understand that sometimes the answer to our praying for something is no. And it may be praying for a really good thing, and there was a redirection. And so uh, Paul, in obedience to that vision that was given to them, travels all the way across, goes to Philippi. And this is where we left that group last week. 
was in Philippi, the Philippian jailer. Lydia was by the bank there. And so for our time this week, we're going to talk about this section, and then next week we're going to focus in on the city of Corinth. When you go away from home, as many of us have done, there are lots of new things. There's new traditions, especially if you go to a different country. There's new traditions, there's new customs, there's new food, there can be new languages, there's new dress. But usually when you're away from home, you think about what? At some point, you think about what? Your pillow, your bed, your refrigerator, your stuff, because there's a familiarity to home that we all love. The same is true spiritually. When we are away from what is familiar to us spiritually, we can long for home. Whatever home is, I know that's very subjective to say that. It could be a better time or a time where you really felt like you were connected spiritually or things were going well spiritually for you or those around you. It could be maybe a place where you felt like there was more buy-in to the gospel and to Christian principles. You can feel like home is where you want to be. I'm not an alarmist. I'm not a fatalist. I'm not a person to predict doom and judgment. I'm not doing that at all. But uh, there are Christian people who have felt that perhaps uh, they are a long way from home spiritually, from where they believe they are most comfortable spiritually. Maybe it's not as easy to preach the gospel as it once was in maybe, say, the 50s. I don't know. I wasn't alive in the 50s. But sometimes Christian people can believe that they are a long way from home. And I think sometimes what can happen when we believe we're a long way from home, whatever home is for you, is that somehow the effectiveness of God's Word diminishes. Now, we know that's not true. Nobody's going to say that. But we can believe that maybe the Bible isn't as effective or the claims of the gospel aren't as powerful. And I want to show us today from this text of Scripture when Paul is a long way from home, not only physically, but spiritually he's a long way from Jerusalem where there's a very religious climate, even though albeit some of it is a negative religious climate. He's a long way from home, and being a long way from home He is still preaching the gospel, even though a little bit differently than he did in other places. And I hope by this sermon today that you will catch a couple things. I want you to get from this sermon and from what we see in the text that God wants you to preach the gospel where you are. Now, I'm saying preach the gospel. The words preach the gospel are not found in Acts chapter 17. Um, I'm just saying that because it rolled off of my tongue. It would be more accurate to say uh, reasoning the gospel because that's the word that's used in Acts 17. That where you are, wherever that might be, God has people in whom He is working and that the gospel is just as powerful, just as effective. You may not see the exact result that you want to see, but that's up to God anyways. That was always up to God. Our responsibility is to be obedient and to share the gospel so that there are more worshipers who give glory to God. And so we are going to look this morning at Acts chapter 17. I have three points to this message. 
the gospel is really the gospel is through the book of Acts. The gospel is being carried to these places. So I have the word gospel in each one of these points: gospel breadth, gospel opposition, where I'm going to spend less time because that's going to come up again. And then the third point is where I want to spend most of our time, gospel-fueled passion for God's glory. I want to look at Acts chapter 17, the first couple of verses. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, from the scriptures. Now, when I originally did this, I had the word breadth in there, even though it doesn't come out as easily. It was just on my mind. But as I was reviewing this this morning, I thought growth is a better word. So I'm going to replace breadth with growth. The first point here is that there was a growth in their openness to the Spirit of God and His leading. As I showed you from the map, the Spirit of God directed them to some places that were far away from home. It was Paul's intention to go to Rome, but that's not where God directed him. It says in Acts 16 and verse 10, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called called us to preach the gospel to them. I want to carry this through because when we were in our community groups, we were having questions and really kind of drilling down on this to try to get this more into our hearts And just ask us this question, are we learning to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God? One of the questions that we ask in our community groups when we were in uh, one of the earlier chapters of Acts, Acts chapter 8 specifically, where Philip was led to go talk to or run alongside the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch, that there was this prompting. And here's the question, does the Spirit of God still prompt us today? We spent some time on that question. My own uh, indication of that or my own belief about that is absolutely yes. Spirit of God is not going to direct us to do something outside of what the Word of God commands, but the Spirit of God prompts us. The Spirit of God leads us, and the Spirit of God led them, and the Spirit of God will lead us today. And so my question to you is simply by way of application, are you being sensitive to the Spirit of God? Say, what does it feel like to be sensitive to the Spirit of God? Well, it's a person who's in the Word of God. It's not somebody who just gets a sort of shiver about something. But it's a person who's learning to follow the promptings of the Spirit of God based upon the Word of God in God leading us in certain ways. Are you obedient to the promptings of the Spirit of God? Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 13 in the setting apart of of Saul and Barnabas. Sometimes I think, uh, we think that outside of those incidents, the Spirit of God is not speaking. But the Spirit of God is speaking to us today, not in extra revelation, but the Spirit of God is leading us today. There was a growth in their openness to the leading of the Spirit of God. Therefore, we should have growth in that area as well. There was also a growth of the explanation of the gospel. I think it's interesting that in this chapter, Paul enters the synagogue repeatedly. Now, what happened in the Roman world is that the emperor expelled Jews from Rome, and so there are Jews scattered all over 
the known world at the time. And as I believe Josh mentioned last week, if you had 10 Jewish men in a city, you can have a synagogue. So the question may be, if Paul is that far away from home, where did these synagogues spring up? It's because Jews were scattered all over the known world, and so there were synagogues, and so Paul would begin at the synagogue, because the synagogue was a place that, first of all, he would have been accepted. He was a Jewish man himself, but he would have known how to dialogue with people in the synagogue. There were people there willing to talk. And so Paul enters the synagogue as he had done before, many times before, all the way back to chapter 13 and verse 5. And it says that in verse 2, he reasons with them from the Scriptures. Now my question is, what Scriptures? You have a Bible today. He wasn't carrying a Bible. What Scriptures was Paul reasoning with them from? I know we know this, but just to review, Paul is writing parts of the Bible. So he's not talking about his writings necessarily. What are the scriptures that Paul is reasoning with them from? What Paul is reasoning with them from are the scriptures that an Old Testament Jew would have been thinking about, and that is the Old Testament of the Bible. Paul didn't have a completed New Testament. He's doing what Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He is taking the Old Testament and he's explaining Jesus out of the Old Testament to these Jewish people. He's preaching the gospel to them. It says in verse 2, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Where is he doing that from? He's doing that from the Old Testament. I just want to point out here that one of the mistakes that we make is believing that the gospel is reduced to kind of the three points on a track or what's indicated in what we would call the Romans road. The gospel storyline runs from Genesis to Revelation. They were preaching the gospel from the entire Old Testament scriptures without the Romans road. I want to mention that we have sought to do this in our preaching here at Bethel Baptist Church. We we have sought to do in many of the sermons that we bring on Sunday mornings is even from an Old Testament text or a text that may not even mention the word gospel to see how the themes of the gospel emerge from that text. The reason we're doing that is not only for those who may be listening who are not Christians, But we're doing that so that you get used to hearing how the gospel can naturally emerge out of a text, even when you're not in a text that explicitly explains the gospel. This is what Paul is doing, and this is what we should do as well. There's also a growth in these people in their willingness to sacrifice for the gospel. There's been so much sacrifice already. I'm going to refer in this sermon today to the book of 1 Thessalonians a couple of times. I think the verses are on the screen But the book of 1 Thessalonians comes out of this journey of these churches that were planted in this region. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And I want to focus in on that statement, not be a burden. It's interesting that in verse 1, in verse 10, and in verse 17, there are synagogues in this place as there are Jews all over this region. And in Thessalonica, it says that he was there at least three Sabbath days. So he was there at least a month, probably. And during that time, he wasn't imposing on the hospitality of people, but he found what we would call, I don't like this word, but just to explain it, he found secular work. 
Um, He wasn't being funded to do this by the church. If he was, it was a very small amount, perhaps. He couldn't have sustained himself on that. And so in order to not be a burden on these people, he's not just preaching the gospel, he's working as well. And I'm simply pointing this out to say, this is not a single sermon that's doing the trick. It's not coming in, setting up, standing on a, on a little box, preaching the gospel, and people get saved. It's spending time with people. I think it's good to hand gospel tracts. It's good to carry gospel tracts. I'm not against that at all. This is not about going in the town and passing out gospel tracts. These are all good things. But this is a guy who is willing to spend time knowing that it's going to take time, and there's a growth in their willingness to sacrifice for the gospel. So I think it's come to us, by way of application, how much are we willing to sacrifice for the gospel? And I know that we would be willing to say, well, we'll sacrifice. What is it? What do I need to do? Is it having the long look toward your neighbors in developing friendships with them, in praying for them, in showing love to them, in not merely inviting them to a, an event at church. I think sometimes we, I've done this, we use our neighbors to fulfill sort of the guilt that we have, that we need to be witnessing, we need to be doing this, we need to be sharing the gospel, and we're trying to be obedient, but they never hear from us. And then when we have something, then they get invited to that, and I think that's a start, but are we willing to take the long look with these things? To show love when it doesn't even mean at that point preaching the gospel, but it's giving an opportunity to show kindness and to show the love of Christ that one day we might preach the gospel. Paul was spending time with these people. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, this is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, It almost sounds a little scandalous to say that. It sounds like a preacher ought to be saying, I was willing to share the gospel, period. But he says, I'm willing to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is the difference between using people to fulfill some sort of guilt obligation we might have to preach the gospel and actually loving those people because they're created in the image of God and we want to share our lives with them. How can we do that? This would be a great community group question. How can we share our lives in a better way with those in our circumference where God has placed us? How can we share our money? How can we share our food? How can we share our kindness? How can we share our lawnmower? I mean, most of us, that's a sacred item, our lawnmower. We're not going to share our lawnmower. We don't want the neighbor's weeds to get cross-pollinated into our yard, you know. But I mean, what are things that we can share? It says that we were willing to share not only the gospel, but our own selves. This is a growth in being willing to sacrifice for those around us. Loving God, spending time with others. There's a growth in their willingness to be used of God in this way. Secondly, there's gospel opposition. This is verses 10 through 15. I'm not going to take much time with this because I want to spend the bulk of the time at the sermon on Mars Hill. 
But I at least want to point out that there was some significant gospel opposition here. I think it almost goes without saying, whenever the gospel is going to be preached, there's going to be pushback. The pushback isn't always that people are trying to be unkind. There is pushback because there are real demonic elements that are pushing back. Listen again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says in verses 1 and 2, You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. I think that's interesting that he says that. It's almost as if someone would think to themselves, I wonder if this was even worth it. It was so hard, I wonder if it was worth it. He says, our coming was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That's what was going on. It was in the midst of much conflict. What was the conflict? Look at verse 5 of Acts 17. The Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Who is Jason? He's a guy that partnered with Paul. He's a guy that was seeking to show hospitality. He was a guy that just stepped up to the plate, said, come, stay here. And they attack this guy, and, and he ends up paying money so that they can release the men. I mean, the whole thing is really, really interesting, but I'm just simply going to let it here and say that wherever there's gospel advance, there's going to be pushback. There's going to be pushback here. There's going to be pushback in other churches. There's going to be pushback personally in your lives. There's going to be pushback, gospel opposition. But I want to go to this third point, a gospel-fueled passion for God's glory, which is chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. This is a very famous sermon. This is the Sermon on Mars Hill is what it's referred to. Uh, What's interesting about how this is divided up is it talks about what Paul saw, what he felt, and what he did. So I'm just going to use those points, what Paul saw, what he Uh, felt and what he did. What did Paul see? So in verse 16, it says that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he saw the city was full of idols. So here's what happened. When Paul was at Thessalonica, he went down to Berea, and from Berea, they sent him down to Athens. From that map, that's a significant journey. They sent him on alone. They sent him on alone, probably so that he could decompress. He had been through a lot. There had been a lot of giving out, giving out, giving out. They wanted him to be safe. They wanted him to take some time. Just to review about Paul, Paul was an educated man. He was a man who had spent time in his life in the academy. He liked to debate ideas. He liked to go back and forth. He liked to hear differences of opinion. That was the kind of guy he was. The city of Athens would have been a dream place for him to go. We don't know this. I'm just supposing this. His companions thought, Paul, you've always wanted to go there. You've heard about the people that came out of there. Socrates, Aristotle. This is the city of thought, Paul. We want you to go and we want you to just take it in. And then wait for us and when we come we can figure out what to do. So you can imagine Paul in this city, this famous city, which is not at its peak anymore. Um, It's still the cultural center of the Roman Empire, though. And he's walking around. He's just taking it in. 
He's looking at the Parthenon and all of the various structures and uh, the various gods that are there, Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Neptune, Diana, the whole pantheon of the gods of Olympus. These things were in gold and bronze. They were beautiful structures. Impressive place by today's standards. This is what Paul saw when he went to Athens. It was a great, great city. But the text focuses in on what he felt. This is interesting because this is not something we often get a glimpse into with the Apostle Paul. And so here he is walking around the city, and it says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now I want to drill down on the word provoked for just a moment as well as another word in this passage. The word provoked is a similar word to what was happening in Acts chapter 15 with the schism that occurred between Paul and Barnabas. That there was a provocation, there was a, here's the word, our English word, a paroxysm that was going on. That there was this this immense emotional conflict that was happening between, in Acts 15, two dear friends. Here in Acts chapter 17, there was something going on inside of the, the soul of Paul where it wasn't just him kind of being ticked off at all these gods. Deeply within the Apostle Paul, there was a feeling that something was wrong. What was wrong? This particular word that's used in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So when the Old Testament was done in Hebrew and Aramaic, they did a, um, or Hebrew and Chaldean, the, uh, the uh, Greeks came up with a Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this word is used of God being provoked. So when God sees something that's out of whack, God is provoked by that. So this is a a feeling of intense emotional pressure. This enormous beauty that was in Athens, these people, they were ignorant to the beauty of God. What was causing the conflict within Paul? They were ignorant to the beauty of God. These gods were impressive. It was an impressive city. You can go to Athens today. Some of you have been there. And it still stands as an impressive city. It's a remarkable thing. But when Paul saw these things, when he saw the education, when he saw all of the activity, he saw that it was all without God. And that these people didn't know who God was. It produced in him an incredible pity and an incredible anger. Similar to the anger that Jesus had when he was at Lazarus' tomb in John 11, and that his spirit was deeply provoked within him. He was deeply moved within him. What was he angry about? He was angry at what death was doing to these people. Paul was angry at what the city was under as a result of not knowing God and these idols. Back in verse 5, the Jews are jealous of the attention that's going away from them to the gospel. In this passage, Paul is jealous of the attention that's going to all of this stuff and away from God. So what did he do? What did Paul do as a result of being deeply affected? And Paul is used to now ministering within a team. He has no team, it's just him. 
It's really not safe for him to be doing things on his own, but he is so deeply bothered, he can't help but to do something. What does a person do who is concerned about the glory of God? That's the real issue. It wasn't a guy who was just ticked off about idols. It was about the worship that's going to this instead of to God. He's concerned about the glory of God. What does a person like that do? Paul's going to tell us in his writings later to the Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, for God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, a lot of darkness in Athens, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. A person who is concerned about the glory of God is going to center themselves on the gospel because in the gospel we see the glory of God. And so here is what Paul did in verse 17. It says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he goes to the synagogue, which is his familiar place. It's his starting point. And then he goes to the marketplace. That's a place where people are doing things. It's not like just going to Walmart or going to Target. It's a place where people are hanging out a little bit more. But then they hear the message, and they take him to this place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the place where Athenians would go to debate ideas. And so they place him in the Areopagus so they can hear from him. And in verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, note how complimentary he is in a good way. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now this is a guy who has seen all of these idols. and His spirit is greatly disturbed. But he doesn't take it out on the people. He's going to be confrontational, but he doesn't take it out on the people. They are very religious. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And then he describes why. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I think it's interesting that he takes a cultural touch point and begins there. He doesn't start by just kind of ramming the gospel at them, expecting them to understand. He starts with a cultural touch point. He starts with their gods and that there was this one God that was to the unknown God. And so he makes an appeal to the fact that even you know that you guys are really big on gods, but there might be one out there you forgot. Even you know that. And they would have probably been nodding. Yeah, we might have forgotten. Who is it? Well, let me tell you. You have forgotten about one. Let me tell you who that is. He acknowledges their religious fervor, and then he begins with a cultural touch point and says, let me talk about something more. He does this in a very salty way. It's not offensive to them. He's doing this in a way that they will hear what he has to say. It won't always be this way, but in this situation, he is doing so. He's going the nth degree to help the message to be heard. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it. Note where he starts. He doesn't start at the cross. 
Starts at the beginning with creation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. One of the cultural touch points of being in a city of idols is that those idols needed something from the people. They needed the worship of the people. Uh, the, The people needed something from the God. That's why there were so many of them. God of fertility, God of agriculture, God of sun, God of this, God of that. They needed, they needed these particular gods, but they, in their minds, the gods needed them as well. What he's saying is, there's a God out there, he doesn't need your worship. He's completely self-sufficient. This God doesn't need anything. Now, the text is going to specify there's two different types of people that are in the crowd there. There's Epicureans and there's Stoics. Let me give you just a little bit about each one of those. The Epicureans believed that there were gods, but that the gods were indifferent to this world. There was contentment in this life by simplicity and detachment from worldly things. So the more simplistically you could live without being attached to worldly things, the more contentment you would have in this life. And then at the end of life, all of it's going to go to dust anyways, so live as contentedly and as simplistically as you possibly could. Those were the Epicureans. A lot more to that, but that's a simplistic way of us understanding it. The Stoics. The Stoics were pantheistic. They believed in many, many, many gods, but that the god life was in everything. Everyone had God within them. Every object had God within it. God was everywhere. And whatever happened, happened. You didn't need to seek God because He was in everything. And whatever happened, happened. Now, that may sound very complicated. It may sound very heady. But the point was, is that the message that Paul is speaking a long way from home speaks to that. It speaks to that. It speaks into that. The message was relevant. He's not apologizing for the message at all. His explanation is absolutely fantastic. Look at verse 26. He says, And he made God from from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. What that says is that your life has value. Remember, the Stoics didn't believe you needed to seek God who was in everything. What he's saying here and what he's proclaiming is that God made you to seek Him. That's why we're here. And then he says, and perhaps feel your way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. He's not distant and uncaring. So in those two verses... He's talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics. The message fits right there. And by the way, this message could be read in probably three minutes. He didn't convince them in three to five minutes. What we have here, most people believe, is a synopsis of his longer explanation, but it was indeed the very uh, guts of what he shared with them. Look at verse 30. Here is the response. So he's not pulling any punches here. He's not just saying, you know, God's out there, you find him. He wants to be found. It says in verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent of what? Repent of idolatry. 
This would have been a huge thing to say to these people. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. This is Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what he is saying is that this is not meaningless. The Epicureans would have picked that up. Nor are we going to be absorbed into the cosmos as the Stoics believed. But everything is moving towards something and that something is a judgment and there is a response and you can repent. Now, there was mockery to this. There was delay. Some people said we don't uh, know what to do. We want to hear you again about this. But there were some who believed. I want us to see from this sermon, from the brief explanation of this sermon, is that the gospel is for people, and it's for people in the public square. It's for people, the gospel speaks into everything in life. I think sometimes we think we have this very fragile message, and there's so many complicated things going on in the world, the nuclear war, and this and that, and oh my, I just, we we need to kind of share the gospel and then get back to our homes and hope nothing bad happens. But that the gospel is for the public square. It can be defended. It's that strong. There was one writer, I can't remember who said this, that believed or that suggested that we should have an agnostics anonymous. Where people would come together and that there would be free and open dialogue about Christian ideas. I think at the very least, we as Christians need to be more thoughtful in dialoguing with people who disagree with Christianity in ways that are salty, that would allow them the freedom to listen and to engage in those things in a way that has an apologetic element. And I'm not saying that you can always explain things that takes away the offense. You can't do that. We can't do that. There is an offense with the cross. It is a bloody cross. It has Jesus on it. It is for our sin that He died on that cross. We can't take that away. But I think sometimes we are the offense in how we bring things up or believing that unless we have an opportunity to present the Romans road, we didn't get a chance to preach the gospel to people. When I think we ought to be looking for opportunities to engage in dialogue, I think if we were really willing to admit it, we haven't engaged in that well as Christians and we're very, very insecure about that. Unless we're in a position with a lot of support, we don't believe we can have the upper hand and we don't want somebody to get the best of us, so we're not going to dialogue about it. And so we stay out of discussions about race and about politics and about lots of other issues because, quite frankly, we just don't know where the gospel fits with all of that. John Stott, who's passed away now, said, God calls human beings to be humble but not to stifle their intellect. Sometimes we think to ourselves that humility equals sort of a simplistic mind about things. Doesn't, they can't be, they can, they can coexist. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5 in the NIV. It says, Paul said, For, you, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that He has chosen you, by the way, let's just sit for that, with that for just a moment if that feels uncomfortable. I'm using the words of Scripture. 
Why would Paul put himself out there by himself in a very vulnerable position in Athens? Listen, they could have taken him into the Areopagus and him talked about all of that and they could have ripped him to shreds. I mean, those things happen in other places. Why was he willing to put himself out there like that? Because he believed there were people there in whom God was at work and those people would be worshipers of the one true God, but they needed a mouthpiece. They didn't know. And he had to speak so that they would come to Christ. And right here he's saying, those are people God has chosen. Verse 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words. And the reason I'm putting this verse in is because You know, we can read all kinds of books on apologetics. We can get apologetics courses. We can try to to serve up the right environment to talk about the gospel, and it's still not work. Here's, here's, I don't want to say this is the missing ingredient, but here here is what makes it all work. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, here's my challenge to us as a church today. This is, this is across this country, folks. This, this is across the world. But I, I'm saying in the United States of America, we have seen churches grow over the last, let's just say, 50 to 80 years. I mean, the amount of churches in the United States of America is extraordinary in comparison to the rest of the world. What happens in churches like this one is once you get to a certain size... We talk about preaching the gospel, but we rarely do it. And I'm not saying that as a condemnation of us. I am saying it because we just don't feel that we need to much anymore. Practically, we have, we have piano players, we got deacons, we have singer, we got ushers. I mean, you just don't need people anymore. Now, I know we're supposed to preach gospel. I mean, nobody's going to say not do that, but we don't feel the need. You know the church is reaching people? Are the churches who are meeting in elementary schools, if they're able to still do that, who have to set up chairs every week, have to set up a sound system every week, and there's like 40 people there, and they're talking intensely about the people that they're witnessing to. Those are the churches reaching people. You say, well, we need a program. We don't need a program. What we need are people who are reasoning in places where we are with the truth of Scripture. Because if you're far from home, this message didn't go far from home. (laughs) This message is still powerful because it is the Spirit that gives the power. And if nothing else, I, I I don't even like to say that, but if nothing else, at the very bare minimum, I think what ought to come out of a message like this today is we ought to be praying for the deep conviction and power of the Holy Spirit. Because it says in this text, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings deep conviction. You say, this person, I just, you know, I talk to them and it seems like, poo, just goes over their head. Listen, we don't know what's going on in the heart, but I do know what's going on in the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is concerned about souls because those souls can be worshipers forever before God. So God raised up people in this place who are not just concerned about building Bethel Baptist Church. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not concerned about filling these pews. I'm not concerned about but more and more and more and more. We have a lot. What I'm concerned about is that we get back Bethel Baptist Church. 
If we're truly concerned about the glory of God, and what church isn't? What church isn't concerned about that? What church somewhere in their purpose statement doesn't say, we exist for the glory of God, blah, 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 and whatever they have? Everybody's concerned about that. But here is a guy who's concerned about that, who is so intensely, emotionally provoked in his spirit that he doesn't just fly off. No. He goes to the familiar place first. He goes to the synagogue. And then he kind of branches out. He he kind of probably hears, hey, where do people hang out around here? Oh, the marketplace. So he goes to the marketplace. He's talking to the marketplace. He's not making himself a pest. He's just talking. People talk. There are people who talk. He's just talking. And because he's not locked into the Romans' road, he can talk from anywhere. He can become more agile at how he's talking. And don't let that dissuade you. We're all in that process. A lot of us grew up with little tracks with the Romans' road. and We're okay if somebody wants to know how to be saved, but, but we're not okay if somebody's talking about this issue over here and we don't have any idea how the gospel connects with that. And it seems like this incredible leap to get into spiritual things. I don't think Paul felt like that at all. I think Paul got into conversation and then they hear and then they take him to this place. It's just one step after the other. Folks, does the Spirit of God do that today? He can do that. So what I'm saying to you is this, Bethel Baptist Church. What I'm saying is, where is your Areopagus? I want you to use, that's that's a weird word. I want you to use that word in your head. Where is your Areopagus? Because we don't have a place like that today. We don't have a place in the United States of America where people just get together and debate ideas. That's just not, we don't do that. You say, well, yeah, that's on on Facebook. (laughs) That's not the Areopagus. By the way, that whole discussion has influenced us in major ways that are dangerous. I'm not preaching against social media. I'm saying without a strong way of dealing with that, that will be what influences you. Reposting articles that agree with your opinion. It's not what Paul was doing. We don't have an Areopagus today, but we can create those places where God allows us to have conversations. And yes, it may take a month. It may take a few years. But one thing we can bet on, I shouldn't say that, that's not good. One thing we can count on, we can count on the Holy Spirit of God empowering the words of God, using God's servants because, because we said it right, because we gave this incredible explanation. No. Because the Spirit of God, more than anybody in this room, desires more worshipers of God. And one day, those worshipers will be around the throne of God and all the attention will be on God. And it will be because people in this life, we are simply obedient to do the work of God and speaking the truth of God in our own individual Areopaguses. Let's pray. Father, give us the boldness to do that. I pray that right now, God, you'd help every Christian here in their heart to say, God, help me set up an Areopagus. Help me to step into that space. For some, it's family. For some, it's work. For some, it's outside of of any of those things. And then, Lord, give us weekly gospel conversations. Lord, deliver us from this 
what I think is, is an American ideal of, of having to go through the Romans road and, and, and only that's preaching the gospel. God, give us the reasoning of the Apostle Paul and his, his friends to be able to reason with people from the Scriptures. God, give us a, a saltiness about our lives. Give us the ability to not become quickly dissuaded when an argument is thrown out that we don't quite understand, we don't know what to do with. Father, I pray that by Your Spirit that You would help keep leading us and guiding us as a church Oh, God, deliver us from being a church that say, yeah, we're concerned about the gospel. We're concerned about the glory of God, but we rarely speak about it. God, as we go into our places of work and our places of of eating and shopping and all of this kind of stuff, that, that we would see that our own city and that our own hearts can be full of idols and that it's only the true worship of the living God that really matters. And so, God, we thank you today for the opportunity of considering these things and of reasoning together until one day we worship you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to have our worship team join us on the platform here for some final singing. If you feel that you need to be dismissed at this time, you're certainly welcome to do that. But as they gather, will you all stand, please, as we conclude with a few final songs. Standing, please, as we close in singing today.